the feast is all. Now brimming wine in lordly cup is seen to shine before each eager guest. And silence fills the crowded hall, as deep as when the herald's call thrills in the loyal breast. Welcome back to the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. By the time you're listening to this, we will be deep in the festive season. I will be sort of sleepy and drunk and a bit round <laughs> for an entire an entire week. I think this episode, you're probably listening to this on or after the 29th, if I've got my dates right. So yeah. that in that wonderful, sleepy, liminal period between uh, Christmas and New Year's when it's just walks in the snow and like sitting by a fire with a big golden retriever. <sighs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, I'm not there. Just, I'm here in your house. hibernating like a bear. Yeah. Definitely. Oh. Yeah. Bears have got a lot of stuff figured out, you know? Definitely. If only I could just, you know, just get really fat and then fall asleep for six months. I'd love that. So yeah, for this episode of the Weird Medieval Guys podcast, we asked and you answered with questions that we're going to answer because this is Weird Medieval Q&A. Woo! So thanks to everyone on Twitter and on Instagram who sent in your wonderful questions about the Middle Ages, about the podcast. Um, about stupid bullshit. <laughs> yeah, about serious bullshit, about stupid bullshit, um, and all of that. So thank you so much for responding. And we are going to be going through some of um, your questions, the most pertinent ones, the most salient ones. Um, and we are going to be providing you all the answers. We might not get to everybody. In fact, we almost certainly won't. But we did read them all. We did read them all. And, and we appreciated all of the ones. Yeah. And if your question isn't in the answers you should know you know if we don't bring it up you should know that it's because it's just such a good question that we're probably going to do a full episode on it later down the line there are a couple like of questions that. like that actually oh yeah there were loads where i was like i don't i can't even get into that yeah you know anyways so we got around 50 answers in total and in the interest of keeping things um spontaneous fun and interesting we meticulously planned out how we were going to run this episode so without looking at any of the questions that you've sent to us, I've split them in half. Aaron's got half. I'm got. I've got half. I've got the better half. I think. I think you might have. I'm. I've begun to suspect because um, I think you're gonna. You're about to kick us off with a really good one. <laughs> we have this great question to start us off from Grant Wagner, who asks, "Do people consider the medieval period to be the Dark Ages because they think it is mid and evil?" So the uh, it, uh, this is kind of a joke question, but the answer is. Straightforwardly, literally, yes. <laughs> so the etymology of medieval is obviously just Middle Ages. And it's really important to remember that that is not what the people who lived in that period called it. Medieval is a term, and Middle Ages is a term that comes up really sort of after the Renaissance is kicked off. Because it signifies that the that period of time is this sort of like weird dull or just straight up miserable period in between the glorious antiquity and the um the renaissance which is all about returning to that past so it's like it's basically that the middle ages is like this shit detour yeah essentially on the history of human progress yeah basically basically um yeah because it was you know the whole reason for calling it the middle ages i mean i think now 
and we denote and delineate different periods in time. In the present day, often it's with the intention of trying to understand different social movements, or if we look, you know, more broadly. Periodization is fake. Yeah, exactly. But if it's we, fun, so you should do it anyway. Broadly, it might be, you know, geological phenomena or, you know, periods of climate. Um, and people who coined the term medieval were trying to do the same thing, but like all periodization, everyone who attempts periodization, they were biased and they were trying mm. to create um, a very clear boundary between themselves and the perceivedly, the perceived uh, inferior past. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that it, this is one of, this is, this I think speaks to a wider problem of history, which is that a lot of the language that we use, when we're trying to be neutral about this stuff, uh, is fated with the with these sort of quite problematic sort of normative yeah. ideas about like I mean modern is a great word because modern modern both refers to a period in time but it also refers to it also is something that has like very positive connotations whereas medieval is something that has very negative connotations and those are not accidental the negative connotations of those words didn't come around because people looked at that period and were like oh, this sucked, it was because they were trying to make, they, they were using that name to make a point. Yeah, exactly. So there you go. Exactly. To answer your question, yes, it was mid and evil. <laughs> yes, but no more mid and evil than we who try to I call think, it such. I think we've done quite a good job in the la in sort of, both in scholarship, but also just like in pop history, at pushing back at the dark ages. Like that has been quite, you know, I'd say is much less prevalent than it used to be. Yes. And it's certainly problematized a lot more. You know, but it's it's unfortunately still around. Um, even if it is sort of receding now, people just, I think, really just use it to refer to, like, always, like, pre-10th century. Yeah, there still seems... Now it seems like the, the most common thing I see is, oh, actually, the Dark Ages is just the pre-10th century, and it's called that not because things were worse, objectively, but because there's a lack of sources, which yeah. is also not in the slightest the reason why the term Dark Ages no. you know, came about. <laughs> uh, but it's progress. It's repurposing. It's progress. Um, but I think, yeah, it's to call any period of time the Dark Ages. I think, you know, hopefully everyone can understand why that's just beyond loaded yeah <laughs> in terms of you know a phrase to use well you look at like you know even if you take culture from that period like there's incredible incredible even in the sort of what you might call the sort of fringes and the le less developed parts of you know eurasia like north like northern europe there's still incredibly like beautiful works of art and um and cultural kind of and 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 and, and you know and, and poetry and and uh, I mean just like Celtic inlaid jewelry from the early medieval period is shockingly shockingly beautiful and uh, is incredibly intricate and requires so much time and effort to make something that beautiful that I think speaks to a much a, a culture that's much more sophisticated than we give it credit for. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we've touched on things like the Carolingian Renaissance before, mm. but yeah, what you see as well with a lot of medieval art is actually the stuff that was made immediately after um, the fragmentation of the Roman Empire is actually the stuff that's the most naturalistic and the stuff mm. that's made in the Dark Ages, you know, 
that has the most Roman influence actually looks a lot much more like what we would consider to be classical art style. So it's funny how things don't always all uniformly follow these single consistent trends of up and down in our perception. Things, you know, because it's so easy to want to think, oh, art got worse and then it got better. Yeah. Um, it's not, not the case. Here's one for you, Aaron. Ooh, ooh, hello. This one um, is from Dennis Long, who says, You said my name in a previous podcast, <laughs> and now I'm addicted to attention. Dennis Long. So, thank you. What have I unleashed? Dennis Long. <laughs> Dennis Long. Dennis Long asks us, have you been able to give any more thought to a weird medieval guy's theme park? <laughs> <laughs> oh, what would it, what would be on it? I think you would have to have, like... You'd get stabbed. I'm trying... Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, there'd definitely be lots of ale. Yeah. And buxom barmaids and things like that. I think some kind of, like it's a small world kind of thing but with like weird automatons <laughs> yeah that definitely. would be good for any of you sort of dutch or belgian listeners i'm trying really hard here not to just describe the efteling no idea what that is oh my god okay it's like a it's like a theme park uh it's like fairy tale themed in in the netherlands it's pretty cool i think you'd be able to buy like a whole sort of fried or roasted eel definitely like yes on a stick. um you know like how disney you have all of the influencers going around being like here's what i ate in a day at disney i got a mickey mouse waffle and then i got a mickey mouse ice cream and then i got a mickey mouse sandwich <laughs> we would have that but wait are they made of mickey mouse yes mouse meat. i knew it <laughs> Uh, we'd have that, but it would just be like, you know, first I got the eel, and then I finished that off with some eel, and then and then I went for some eel ice cream. Oh my god, who would... Okay, last question. You know how they have, like, mascots and people wandering around and, like, doing characters and so on? Who do you... Who would you want? Oh my god, so you'd obviously have the Green Knight. <laughs> yes! Obviously. And you'd uh, have King Arthur. Yeah, of course. Um, uh, two attested historical figures. Yeah. Well, that's the point. I mean, Mickey Mouse is not testing <laughs> something. That's the whole point. They're supposed to be like fantasy characters for medieval people. Fuck you. Yeah, yeah. I think oh, so. Do you mean actual medieval? Because I think then you'd have Hildegard von Bingen, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think you'd want to get Charlemagne in there. Mm. Obviously, I think you would want to have like Harold Hardrada and William the Conqueror and yes. um, Harold's. What was the English king? Harold something. Um, of Wessex, um, uh-huh. you'd want them all three, like in a, you know, uh, you know, all of them together. I really, I feel like you need to have Mehmet the second with his like, co- like a, a coven of twinks. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> of, absolutely. Of of, of uh, Christian twinks from yeah. disparate parts of the empire. You definitely have like Vlad the Impaler's field of bodies. Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think it would be good fun for the whole family. Hey kids, come over, take a picture with me. <laughs> oh, don't mind the blood. <laughs> That's just my slain enemies. This one comes to us from somebody who's called themselves a Christian history teacher. I'm assuming that's not your Christian name. No pun intended. Um, Asked, why did the Vikings, the scourge of Christendom, convert to Christianity? Did they get reverse Stockholm Syndrome? 
the reason the Vikings convert to Christianity, or the Norse more specifically, if you want to talk about the whole culture. Yes. Because Viking is a job. Yes, exactly. And lots of Vikings did convert to Christianity, but you're really, we're really talking about, like, Nordic culture. Why did they convert? The reason for that, I think, it really comes down to the sort of a really important thing that I think people who just uh, who just look at the Vikings' impact in Britain and Northern Europe don't really get, which is that they are the most unbelievably opportunistic <laughs> mercenary culture imaginable. They're not really... I mean, they, they violence is an incredibly important part of Viking culture, but they're not just motivated by a desire for violence. They are rapacious capitalists, <laughs> basically. And the the sort of... I mean, a great example of that is, of course, you know, the the, the Rus culture, which is the sort of Scandinavian-slash-Slavic hybrid culture that springs up in these little settlements along the, like, the Volga River, which is caused by the Vikings trying to travel inland to find a way to Baghdad and, uh, and to Constantinople to trade with and like all of their all of the vikings exploits whether it's you know colonizing greenland you know going to constantinople or ravaging like monastic settlements on in coastal britain it's all about the benjamins <laughs> so um when if you are a uh, a nordic king in the sort of you know in the 10th 11th centuries and you can see that christianity is pretty much consolidated as the majority religion in um in at least in northern europe then it is actually very 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 expedient to you to uh to convert to christianity and this is something that they did willingly as you were talking about off the show earlier like this is this was a very this was something that they did enthusiastically yeah like it's one of the few times i think in history when we see sort of mass religious conversion happen really quickly and without very much um, sort of pressure mm. or very much um, what's the word coercion yeah I will say though there was definitely some Vikings who quote unquote converted to Christianity very insincerely <laughs> yes especially and I mean we'll talk about them in a in another episode that we're going to we're going to trail at the end of this but a lot of the Vikings who end up in Constantinople are sort of swaggering around in full beard still very Vikingy. But they're sort of, you know, they've gotten rid of some of the sort of slightly pagan-looking iconography. But they, and they're like, oh yeah, no, I love Jesus. But you can kind of tell they're not that into it. Yes, it's just a job. No, absolutely, because it was it was expedient when the Vikings wanted to go, or when Norsemen or the Norse wanted to go further afield and actually, you know, for instance, integrate at least, you know, somewhat into societies mm. for them to be perceived as Christians yeah. um, by their, their peers um, and by the people around them. But as we saw with Viking raids, for instance, along the coast of England, where they'd basically show up and ravage a monastery um, or a um, abbey or whatever and carry off all of the gold and all of the things from, you know, the churches and the altars, it was also often very expedient for them not to have, uh, not to be too bogged down by, you know, um, notions of what's what's sacred in Christianity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because that was the whole reason these monasteries were safe for so long. Yeah. They thought no one's, surely no one would be so brazen and so heathen <laughs> as to just show up, kill, kill all of our monks, and carry <laughs> off all of the gold. Yeah, I mean, if you've been, if you've been sort of, if you're a, you know, a 
Christian living in Europe and you've sort of gotten acclimatized to that and the only sort of people who the only sort of non-Christian powers that you regularly interact with are like the Muslims who are relatively speaking very chill around Christians you know your expectations are set a little bit high yes. as to how people are going to behave and the Vikings so yeah the Vikings the Vikings did whatever you know served their interests at the time and it became increasingly clear over time that their interests were served by converting to Christianity. I think it's also worth noting that most the Vikings, interestingly, unlike a lot of Europe at the time, were largely a pre-literate culture. Mm. So they had runes, um, which were used for things like monuments and tomb inscriptions, but they didn't really have written language in the sense that they weren't writing down stories. Um, and they weren't, um, you know... They didn't leave a large written footprint until they began to convert to Christianity and adopt the Christian literary tradition. Mm. So um, it's also true that, you know, a lot of the Viking record starts, you know, at the point of Viking contact with Christianity. So it's hard to get a good sort of very unbiased um, point of view, as it is with any historical source, especially one that's a thousand years old. Um, I mean, most of our Viking sources are you know, transcribed oral traditions that are essentially epic poetry. Yeah. Not history. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or we have, you know, like, um, accounts by Anglo-Saxons being like, oh God, they're everywhere. They fear nothing. <laughs> nothing is sacred to them. I find the Vikings so endlessly fascinating because they are probably, of all the European cultures of the Middle Ages, to me, they're the most alien. Yes. Do you know about Ibn Ad-Fadlan? Um, I've heard the name. He's an, He was an Arab... Um, scholar and, and I think businessman as well who ended up somewhere in um, you oh, know, yes. contemporary Russia and witnessed a Viking funeral. Yeah, and he wrote down a, um, It's accounts, terrifying. Yeah. It's utterly ter- It's like has like, there's like intoxication and slaughter and burying a woman alive. It's like... Yeah, they did a lot of ritual sacrifice. Go and search up Ibn and Fadlan Viking funeral. You can find all of it very, very easily, but it's... I won't get into it now because that's a that's an episode. Yeah, but, <laughs> but if you want a sort of creepy, like, you know, if, if, it's, if it's a dark and stormy night and you read, want to read something creepy, yeah, go and read one horrified Arabic scholar's account of what a Viking funeral was like. <laughs> Excellent. He's very... I, I just love Ibn Fadlan as well as a character because he's a very sort of genteel, yeah. kind of like, oh. you know, sensible Muslim, and then he ends up with these maniacs. Oh, dear. <laughs> Heavens! <laughs> Good Lord! to be chopping him to bits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excellent. Um... one from um, Ruth. Ruth says, is that viral post about the medieval dog names written by Edward Duke of York true? What were some medieval dog breeds? Are you familiar with the tweet in... in, uh... Yes, I do. I love that post, even though a little part of me is questioning whether or not it's real. Excellent. So then let's delve into that um, right now and let's give a bit of context for... um... Anyone who's not familiar, this is a tweet that I first made um, ages ago, actually. Yeah, it was in, it was late 2022, but it was, I think, no, it was summer 2022. Um, So this is a tweet that I made um, 
that has been reshared quite a bit that says, in the early 15th century, Edward, second Duke of York, wrote a list of 1,126 names he considered to be suitable for dogs. <laughs> Highlights from the list include... Nosewise, Garlic, Pretty Man, Gaylord, <laughs> Norman, Filthy, Salmon, Sinful, Have Good Day, <laughs> Grimbold, Child, Coke, Baby, <laughs> Snack, <laughs> Honeyball. Yeah. That's quite, I quite like Honeyball. That one's actually. nice. Anyway. Yeah, so the first time that I read about this, I also thought, oh, that's so fucking famous. Because <laughs> it has all of the, it has all of the markers of something that's fake, I think, in that it's, it's a name that sounds plausible enough that you don't, rec- but you don't recognize it, so nobody's going to check. It's about something that the internet likes, which is animals, and it's very silly. And usually, when those tr- three things sort of intersect, when it's like, I mean, I, I could very easily imagine, like, you know, this Arabic scholar wrote down a thousand names for cats. Yep. And it's like fake, obviously yeah. fake. But, but um, it actually took me quite a while to find um, this the list in its entirety, which I eventually did. I found a lot of references to it. I did struggle to find um, the entire thing, but I eventually was able to track it down and read all 1,126 dog names. What was your favorite? Um, I don't know. I think I put garlic at the top of the list. Garlic's pretty good. Garlic is just great. Um, Honeyball is great, actually. I'm really into honeyball. Yeah. Um, What was the first one again? The first one was Nosewise. Nosewise is is, so good. And so I think this is, so Edward, Duke of York, did write down this list, um, and he appended it to a book, a manuscript that he wrote called The Master of Game. That's a hunting manuscript that's basically describing um, medieval hunting customs and procedures. And it was mostly adapted from an earlier French work um, that was called Le Livre du Chasse, I think, by Gaston Phoebus. And so in order to understand why someone would do something so ridiculous and like slightly implausible, I think we need to delve into medieval hunting culture, which is one of those things that deserves an entire episode. We'll do it. Unto itself. By the time you've listened to this, we'll have done it a little bit. Yes. um, In the the previous episode, but... uh, yeah, we need we need to get into it. Probably. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's so fun. Because hunting in the Middle Ages is this unbelievably ritualized thing. Um, and over the course of the Middle Ages, it becomes more and more ritualized. And by the end of the Middle Ages, it's kind of reached its height um, and spilling over a bit into the 16th century as well, in that hunting was something that maybe poorer people did for sustenance, but that wealthier people did for fun and as this sort of elaborate social ritual. Mm. When you're not at war, kind of the next best thing you have is hunting and hunting dangerous animals like boar or bears or wolves or stag. Uh, Stags is a great way to kind of demonstrate like your skill and your prowess. And And it's sport. And it's sport. And it's sport. And like all sports, it takes on this complex set of rules and customs around what you do and what's sort of considered to be sporting, you know, mm. not just um, 
what sort of makes it the easy what's the easiest way to kill an animal they have their own offside rule yeah exactly (laughs) and so you see this culture develop where you have different types of dogs that are bred to chase different animals different weapons created for different animals um, and different sort of methods and the whole thing is this beautiful ritual that actually starts in the morning with all of you and your hunting party you being you know the master of the of the house and of the grounds um, sitting down and having a nice brunch together while your um, sort of scouts start looking for signs of good animals to start tracking which I absolutely love you go to a meadow and you have brunch and um, you send your guys out and they look for animal droppings to bring back to you so Mm. you can look at the droppings and try to tell if it's like a good animal worth chasing and sort of a, a offshoot of this hunting culture was the development of a really highly specific vocabulary that was referred to sort of every individual part of the hunt and of the animals and of the customs and so because of this culture we have things like specific words not just for animals but for male and female animals and for animals at different life stages and for the meat that comes from animals right so like you know it's not you don't say pig you say pork yes and you don't specifically you know always say pig you might say boar or Mm. sow or piglet um there's actually uh specific words for each basically year of a pig's life i think i forget how it works but i think um first it's like a piglet and then i forget the third stage is like pig of the sounder (laughs) and um that is like um grand old boar is like the oldest stage i can't Um, wait to be a grand old boar that's what i'm gonna call myself in my 60s it's great um and so, and so I think this, this kind of hunting culture kind of reached the point of like almost self-parody where it became sort of like a funny in-joke amongst medieval aristocrats um, who were sort of used to this culture of, oh, you need to know all of these words in order to demonstrate that you're sort of the most aristocratic aristocrat. And so it kind of developed even further into something that was its own sort of thing in terms of coming up with... Um, words that had even less practical application. So my favorite example of this is actually um, collective nouns. Mm. So you might be, I don't know if you've ever wondered why- A parliament of owls. We have specific words for different groups of animals. This is a custom that largely began in the middle ages with medieval hunting culture. Mm. So medieval hunters were the people who gave us terms like a pride of lions and a murder of crows and a murmuration of starlings, which is a real thing. And Mm. these are, and a gaggle of geese. And Mm. so these are all actually very descriptive terms and they're descriptive because they were just invented by a guy who said, you know, I'm going to (laughs) write down a list. So there's also (laughs) a great article I've read that's a list of um, medieval collective nouns that were coined by hunters, um, but that include things that weren't really strictly part of um, the hunt. So you have some ones that I really like. You have a quacking of ducks, um, a worthlessness of jugglers, <laughs> a herd of harlots. <laughs> oh my god, that is that's how, that's what I'm gonna call the group chat from now. On. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely, um, is great. There's a, a few more. A um, worthlessness of jugglers. Yep, you've got a leap of leopards, a labor of moles. Um, an These Im- are brilliant. An impatience of wives. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Wife so bad. You have, for instance, that tame cats, a group of 
pet cats is a cluster, whereas wild cats, a group, is a destruction, and a group of kittens is called a kindle. Um, and so you have to understand that the people who are writing down these elaborate lists, like, it was... I don't know. I don't know if there's sort of a, a modern analog, but it was very much something that was done kind of for its own sake. Um, it's fun. Yeah. So we get like, uh, there's, it's hard to think of a specific um, modern analog, but that's because we give stupid names for things all the time. Yeah. It's like girl dinner. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a descriptive, it's a descriptive term that doesn't really have a practical application, but you kind of know what it means. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So and so to sort of tie that to the second part of the question, what medieval dog breeds were there? Um, so if you look at the original list, which I can actually link the article, and I actually was only able to find the list from in the, an article written by the guy who I think had originally transcribed it, who is a South African um, medievalist named David Scott McNabb, who I've actually emailed with a few times, and he's very nice. Um, Academics are very... This is just a fact. If you ever want to talk to an academic, they're happy to. Usually. Yeah, no, you could exactly. just email them. It's crazy. Well, I found him because I had linked the paper on Twitter, and um, he had someone sent me a post he had made on his personal Facebook where he said, "I don't know why, but thousands of people have downloaded my paper about medieval hunting." <laughs> <laughs> so I sent him an email explaining. Um, but if you look at the original list, which I will link. You also see that these names are broken down into different groups for different breeds of dogs and different types of dogs and different <gasps> genders of dogs. This follows kind of the original point I was making that there was also a belief that there were specific names that were good for specific um, types of creatures. And so there's specific names in the list for greyhounds, which were kind of the most beloved and the most sort of universal, universally represented, um, and most universally representative of medieval um, hunting practices so everyone loved their greyhounds um, but then you had um, lots of other kinds of dogs like hunting hounds you had scent hounds um, for instance you had terriers who were bred for chasing smaller prey and chasing prey into um, you know burrows and dens and you also did have lots of lap dogs and you see lots of medieval representations of women in particular with really tiny lap dogs and they're they're poking, the heads are poking out of the handbag. Yep, exactly. Like Paris Hilton. <laughs> got a little bow on their head. <laughs> um, yeah, no, exactly. And you've got uh, spaniels as well. Um, so most of the, most of the classic dog. Yes. Types of dog that you have. Exactly. So yeah, you would have, if you, if you were, you know, a lot of dogs, I think in the Middle Ages would have been recognizable as sort of specific dogs that we have today. I have, a, I have a simple question for you, Olivia. Did medieval people have riz? Ooh. Yes. I mean, yeah, because courtly... Like, courting is such an incredibly important part of the... Like, part, part of high society. We know people had riz because of people who don't have riz. Duffy Quillime's entire body of work is about how he doesn't have any riz. Which is which, how we know he had immense riz. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if we look at, like, you know, medieval people love to write about love. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the idea that there were specific things you could do to make yourself irresistibly attractive. Yeah. Is, like, you know, this is well established. So if you were a man, the thing you were supposed to do... I mean, I would argue, I guess, that medieval romance culture was more focused on kind of, like, simping than, like, riz. Yeah. Okay, first of all, I think we need to make a distinction in that, like, most 
sort of romantic rituals were largely practiced by the upper class. Yeah. So, like, you know, there were probably loads of peasants that had riz, but no one wrote it down. Yeah. Their, their riz has gone sort of unrecognized. And for that, I do feel sad. Unrizcognized. Unrizcognized. That was nothing. They are inrisible in the historical. That was so much better! <laughs> Um, and so, so if you look at what a man is supposed to do in the Middle Ages, um, largely to get a woman's attention and affection, basically the whole idea was that he should expect nothing and give everything, and he should essentially just kind of be throwing himself at her feet, he should be bringing her gifts, um, and he should be, you know, kind of constantly pledging his affection and his allegiance and his love to her, and in response she might sort of, you know, cast him aside and rebuke him. And she might say, you know, uh, I hate you. You know, go away. I don't want anything to do with you. At best, you might get, go out and do great deeds. Mm -hmm. And I might talk to you. Yes. But it's important to note that this was, you know, this was not purely the woman actually saying, I want nothing to do with you. It was part of this ritual that a man and woman had to, like, engage in that was basically, like, just giving each other sort of subtle signals until the man sort of, you know, uh, makes his, his approach. But then in order for it to be, you know, proper for the woman, she needs it's to keep baby, It's baby, it's cold down. outside. It's literally baby, it's cold outside. Yes. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> No, you're right, you're right. That's a good way to, um, to, to, yeah, a good lens to look at it. So a lot of the time, like, we, to take that as a sort of parallel... We would look at that kind of those courtship rituals and go like, "Oh, this poor woman. Yeah, she's being harassed." When in fact, she's like, down bad. <laughs> yep, exactly, exactly. But it's all it's all part of the game. You yes. Know? Oh, the game of love. This was so important um, in the Middle Ages. I guess just to um, just to summarize, um, you know, Riz maybe not strictly, um, you know, more at least not in the written record. Not in the written record. Less rizzing, more more simping. So here's one that I think ties in nicely to that previous one from someone who's left their name as Jingotastic, who's asked, <laughs> "What kinds of acts were common shows of affection or love in the middle in the medieval era? Like how you might bring your best friend a trinket from vacation, or bring food to a grieving neighbor, that sort of thing." So I think that ties in a bit um, to sort of the what we were just saying mm. about romance. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, gift giving was obviously uh, has obviously been a huge thing. As we explored explored in the previous episode. As we explored in the previous episode has been a, a huge. But in thing. case you couldn't tell, we haven't recorded yet. <laughs> As we've discussed before, gift giving um, was a huge thing in the Middle Ages, um, and you saw sort of gifts, you know, at, at all sort of. Um, levels of society so in this sort of courtly love between a, a aristocratic man and woman one of the biggest symbolic gifts that might be given was um, a token of favor from the woman for the man to wear it might be for instance uh, a scarf or a piece of fabric um, or a handkerchief or something that you know had some connection to her that was a personal object that the knight could then wear um, perhaps at a tournament and display publicly as, um, you know, a uh, uh, sign of their bond. And it's their like connection. a medieval version of giving a hickey. Yep. <laughs> basically. <laughs> basically. Um, and, yeah, so giving um, other sort of smaller gifts of things like food were very common amongst um, 
sort of normal working people and souvenirs as well in the middle ages funny you should bring this up mm. those were also a really big thing and there was a bit of a souvenir trade in the middle ages in particular for people who went on pilgrimages yes and so there were things like badges and pendants and trinkets that, that have that are like a pussy yes <laughs> and some of them are religious symbols and some of them are kind of slightly more obscure um, in their meanings so I've posted a few on Twitter before um, lots of them are phallic or um, sort of a vulva shaped vulvar I don't know if that's sort of the vulva equivalent of phallic um, but yeah there's a, a great one I posted of um, for penises carrying a vulva um, on like this big sort of um, litter. An evocative image. An evocative <laughs> image. And there's one of a vulva um, with a bow and arrow riding a horse, which I also love. Um, and these were often made out of lead or tin or other cheap materials and were kind of cast um, in large quantities and you could buy them and um, bring them, you know, wear them around. So be wandering around Jerusalem, you know, you, you've seen all the holy sites and now you've got a couple days to just take it in the city and be like, there'll be a a Jerusalemite, they'd be like, roll up, roll up, get your pussies here. <laughs> yep, basically, basically. On we We've got another one uh, from Anonymous here. Um, so they say, uh, University of Glasgow first year history student here. Whoop, whoop. I read that you guys graduated from Glasgow. I thought you might. Uh, find it cool to hear that I've been listening to weird medieval guys as I walk into uni on my walks as I get to know the city. I'm just about to go into the semester two course on medieval Europe. I remember that one. <laughs> That's where I got the idea for the uh, the Stylites article. Actually, ah. they cover it. They cover it in that uh, in that um, in that episode. So if you want to get ahead of the game, read our Substack. Weird or medieval guys. Your Substack, Substack featuring com. me, really. But <laughs> it's a joint effort. So I'm going to listen to Weird Medieval Guys on repeat instead of doing the assigned reading. Don't do that. Listen to Weird Medieval Guys and do the assigned reading. <laughs> um, thank you guys for your academic support. The question I wanted to ask is about both of your backgrounds in history and medieval studies. I also find myself wondering about how you write and plan the episodes and the episode descriptions. I'll be interested to see even more of what kind of stuff you guys have been enjoying and have been reading that has informed your immense knowledge of all the silly little stories that you tell. A reading list on your substack or something would be lovely. That's so a good all, idea. Again, thank you. All the best. We should do a reading list, actually. I mean, Brilliant. we have we have um, things we link in all the show in all of the notes, as I call them. Um, but <laughs> the yeah, show notes. Yeah, it would be it would be know. good to kind of collate them. Mm. How did you get into medievalism? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit in our inaugural episode, um, though not not loads. So. Yeah, I'm not a historian, as I've mentioned before, and I do try to mention this wherever possible because um, I do get a lot of comments saying, oh, it's cool that you're a medievalist, um, and I'm not, nor am I even a historian in the first place. I actually studied statistics at the University of Glasgow, so I essentially have a degree in mathematics. Um, doesn't get much less historical than that, but history is something that I've always been really interested in, um, and I think I came into it sort of through... Um, art being a, a really big pursuit for me outside of um, my degree and mm. being an artist and um, and being really interested in art history and also having grown up in Montana in the USA um, although I only lived there until I was 10 having sort of um, 
you know, also a, a really long-standing interest in the natural world. And mm. I think if you're interested in art and art history, and especially as pertains to the natural world, um, medieval art is a really, really interesting sort of inroad into history. And so I think that, yeah, I was always um, sort of very, very intrigued by the stories that are there in medieval art, um, especially sort of about the medieval relationship with the natural worlds. And um, even though I studied statistics, I did take a couple semesters of art history as well at oh. Glasgow Uni. But it was it was really good fun. Mm. And I think um, and the tutor I had when I was doing art history was really, really good. And um, I remember this really illuminating, no medieval pun intended, <laughs> seminar we did about <laughs> neoclassical architecture and about this kind of constructed image of um, the world and of the sort of, you know, contemporary, uh, you know, colonialist, like imperialist movements um, and how that was reflected in mm. this kind of classical architecture. And even though this is basically like art history 101, you know, to me, you had never had a formal education in it. That was so, so interesting to me. And I think from there, just became really interested in it. Um, and I also used to work, I brought this up less, I used to work in um, in archives for about six months in Yosemite National Park in California. And um, actually a lot of the work that I did in the archives was digitization and putting public domain materials online um, in these big repositories for people to access. And I think after that, I did that in my gut pia when I was about <laughs> 18. But after doing that, I think that really woke me up to like how much material is out there on the internet for anyone to just kind of use and take advantage of mm. that, that few people do. Right. That's so interesting. Very different, I'd say, from, from my sort of route into this, which is that I have a I have more of a conventional history background. Uh, my, my degree was in my degree. My undergrad degree from Glasgow was in history. And politics. By the way, speaking of Glasgow, if you liked our um, if you liked our episode about Florence, uh, then I recommend you take Samuel Cohn's course <laughs> on Renaissance Florence, and you will be shocked at how closely that the structure and content of that episode uh, sort of sort of follows that Don't course. Don't give away our secrets. No, it was it was a really good course, and it really informed the way that I think about like the relationship between cultural production and um, and, uh, and 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 economics. That's really cool. I mean, I was never a medievalist. And to be honest, I found the Middle Ages, and specifically the Middle Ages in Europe, before I started this project, to be pretty dull. I'm much more of a I'm much more of a modernist, at least like in my in my interests. Like really anything from the French Revolution on is is sort of my my happy place. But this has been a really eye-opening doing this project has been an incredibly eye-opening sort of process for me and i've definitely you know gained a very deep love over the last six months for for medieval history that i don't think i really had before because it it does just come across as a bit stuffy and tedious and that's i think part of the reason why i find things like the weird medieval i originally found the weird medieval guys account so you know enthralling is because it was alien and strange and 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 not something that really stuck with my my stereotypes that i had as somebody who much 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 prefers you know modern history in terms of like a reading list in terms of things that have been super influential on me i would say um benedict anderson's imagined communities 
huge, huge piece of work, devastatingly dry, but really good. Um, the Economy of Renaissance Florence by uh, Richard Goldthwaite, as we, which we sort of shouted out in the uh, in the Florence episode. Um, and uh, specifically, my you know my love of um, and slightly unhinged relationship with uh, with Constantinople, I would pin that pretty heavily on um, two things. First of all, a course that I took in at Glasgow that I'm not even sure runs anymore, uh, but seek it out if you can. It's medieval. It's uh, Middle Eastern cities, and um, but also a book. Uh, called um, Istanbul, A Tale of Three Cities by Bettany Hughes, which is a absolute doorstopper, but it is completely packed with incident and like, and character and, and deep lore of this really interesting, interesting city. And that was a huge inspiration, I think. That's, that's the main reason why I have this fixation. <laughs> Should we go into any of the stuff about like, episode planning? It's been, what, okay, here's the process. Usually I will come to Olivia at the pub and say, I have a great idea. It's this. We're gonna do jesters. And Olivia's like, Aaron, you're a genius. This is why I love working with you, because you're so smart and you, all your ideas are good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, and then... And then I wake up the next morning and I'm like, Aaron, did we ever talk about what we're gonna do for, like, the, for the next episode? And I'm like, yes, we had a 50 minute conversation where we planned out a, three, a five episode arc that we're going to explore. And you're like, what? <laughs> Yes, and this is all, mind you, this is all happening like two days before we record. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, like, I'll have it in my head. I'll be like, okay, so this is going in this slot. This is going in this slot. This is going... And so I'll write, if you want to, oh my God, the the comic image of like the notes that we make for these episodes so is amazing. Because they'll be like, because we use different colored fonts. <laughs> in for, Google Docs. In Google Docs. And so you'll have like five pages of my shit and then I'd say about maybe 50 words of Olivia. Oh yeah, I just added like two <laughs> lines in blue. Um, but you know, you know in a, in um, have you ever seen the movie Amadeus? No. Oh, well there's a great scene um, in Amadeus where they're talking to Amadeus and he's got to write like this piece basically before he dies to pay for his family to have food or something and he's like it's okay, I can do it. Um, and they come back like a day later and they're like, Amadeus, you haven't written anything down, you know. And he's like, "Don't worry, the symphony is done." And they're like, "What, Amadeus? Where is it?" And he's like, "It's in my noodle." <laughs> <laughs> Verbatim, that's what he says. It's such a great film. It's such a great film. It's like because it's not. It doesn't make any aspirations to historical accuracy. And your your introduction to Mozart is like him crawling around on the floor with a woman, like in a back room at a yes. party when he's supposed to be making an appearance. So um, there you go. Olivia it's is all like, in my noodles. Olivia is like a virtuoso <laughs> and I'm like a very stuffy kind of, <laughs> which I would say is, is not really the vibe that either of us came no. off <laughs> in <Nope>. the show. <laughs> production stuff oh, yeah. I also got a question that says I'd like to know what's the deal with the music you guys use in the show we have a lot of questions about this yes I try to answer them when I can but like there's no way to respond to an Apple review so I get like a review that says like what's the music you guys use and I have no idea who it is or how to answer them credit it at the end of every episode I think yeah I will start putting it in the notes yeah. um, so it's two things layered on top of each other 
um, as you might have guessed. And it's two public domain audio recordings that I found on the Library of Congress website. Love the public domain, um, love the Library of Congress. So there's a musical bit and a spoken word bit. The spoken word bit is a Walter Scott poem called A Knight's Toast. Um, and it's uh, obviously not- A knight not, giving a toast. Yeah, yeah. And it's obviously not an actual original um, medieval piece of writing, but the song from what I can tell is, um, it's a song that is, the recording simply refers to it as the Norman Crusader song. And I believe I read something at some point saying that it was, um, maybe it's a, an adaptation or a translation of a song that was sung by the Normans. Um, Maybe. But it's I, of uncertain provenance. Yes. It's got Roland, it and does. it's got Normans, yep. and so it counts exactly. as medieval. <laughs> exactly. No Norman warrior So, this one comes to us from Rachel, who asks, uh, What would have been the best medieval city to live in, in your opinion? Thanks for the cracking podcast. Uh-huh. I'll let you go first. Well, I think it obviously would have changed drastically over yeah. time. <laughs> so it depends when we're looking at. Are we yes. looking at, you know, I think to say, okay, you can choose a time and place. Um, mm-hmm. I have like three answers. Yeah. Depending on period. I mean, best is is obviously relative, but I would say for me, clear answer is you know, if you just think about, like, quality of life, things you can do, access to resources, and, like, connections, probably 15th century Paris or Flanders. Quite mainstream answer. Did you just say Flanders? Yeah. Is that a town? Um, no, it's not a town, I guess. Bruges. I was gonna guess, it's not, who calls it Flanders? Flanders, that's what it's called in, in Dutch, right? It's called Vlaanderen. Flandern. It's not. It's, no, it's called, where did you? Where did it's you get? Like Flandern in German. Oh damn, it's the German in you creeping out. All right, but yeah, you're right. It would be Bruges. So I think I think um you know to give a, a mainstream answer, probably 15th century Paris, Bruges, or Ghent. Mm. I think if you think about like analogs to modern life, those were places that had a pretty, a developing and pretty robust sort of like middle class in terms of like an artisan class and you know people who weren't born into aristocracy but also weren't like you know sort of um manual laborers were treated like garbage mm. well yeah i think that that's 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 a really important point is that it kind of it really does depend on where you are um in the social stratum and cities especially in the later middle ages are really places that can you know can generate social mobility like that's that's kind of something that we talked about in the um, in, in the Florence episode, and so I think my, my answer depends pretty it depends pretty radically on the period. If we're talking about early medieval, if we're talking about very early medieval period, it's obviously Constantinople, blah 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 blah, because that's the only place you're going to get that Roman yep. lifestyle. Uh, past the seventh century, I'd say probably Baghdad. You know, it just seemed like who doesn't want to go full Arabian Nights and just hang out? Like it seems like an amazing. Um, amazing uh, place, but obviously Constantinople and Baghdad both have their sort of great falls from grace in the medieval period, and so part of me does just quite like the idea of living in Bologna in one of those skyscrapers, yes. um, read, reading books and going to lectures, and 
It has a certain appeal. Yeah, to be a scholar, I think, in Bologna. I think approaching it from my own perspective as, like, an artist, being an um, an artist, a visual artist in Paris, um, Bruges, or Ghent, because mm. those were the undisputed, hands down, across the board, um, you know, s- hubs of, like, the most sort of beautiful and prolific manuscript output in the 15th century. Like, that was the place to be if you wanted to be involved in the visual arts. And so I would really absolutely love to be a manuscript illuminator in 15th century Paris. I think it would just be delightful. And that, but that's just in Europe. Like there's, there's a huge part of me that like, I mean, to be honest, China probably has the best standard of living in the world in the, in a lot of the medieval period, barring all the sort of invasions and (laughs) wars that happen or like Tenochtitlan, um, which just seems like this sort of cross between Babylon and Venice and yes. just seems very, very tremendously cool. Very organized. Shame about how we fucking tarmacked the entire city. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's sinking. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Mexicans. I, I really am, but the Spanish did... You already know the Spanish, did you, Derek? Yeah. I don't need to tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think places you can rule out... Um... I mean, for a lot of the Middle Ages, kind of, there weren't really urban, many sort of significant urban centers Mm. in, like, the Holy Roman Empire and Central Europe that had, like, a specific draw. Um, Although I do think Prague probably would have been fun if you were into, like, esoteric stuff. Oh, yeah. You know. Although it's very important to note that Prague doesn't look like Prague as we know it until, Charles V. Yes. Um, so not medieval medieval Prague would not have been this wonderful gothic (laughs) wonderful gothic sort of creepy place that it is now what's the wild card I think the wild card is um, before the 10th century I think if you are you know in maybe today's terms like a bit of a hippie you want to (laughs) be you want to be in like 9th 10th century Ireland or England oh but that's or Scotland yeah but there's not much city life going well on yeah I mean there's not much city life uh, anywhere <laughs> anywhere in in uh, England what were the big settlements in England York London York I yeah. think York would be fun Norwich get the Viking influence in York oh yes I mean for me really really anywhere in the sort of in the Islamic world I think I would have been quite happy yeah I, I, I would have I think I would have done quite well as a sort of Frankish trader. Yeah. Or even like, I in can like see Andal- you, uh, in like Al-Andalus. I can see you like transcribing papyri, you know? <sighs> that would be the, that would be the life, wouldn't it? Yeah, definitely. This is Anna. So Anna has given us, um, five questions. Um, <laughs> So I'm sorry, Anna, we're not going to be able to get to all of these. Um, we're an hour are, in already. <laughs> these are all really good ones, actually. Oh, these are actually all really good. Well, we, some of these we can spin off. So the first one is, if you're a time traveler to England in the Middle Ages and you could only learn one language, would you choose Latin, French, or Middle English? Um, and what, sort of as a corollary, what backstory would you have? Oh, how would, so how would I blend in? Yeah. So to me, I think this is why, assuming that one needs a backstory. I think you do. People will raise their eyebrows if you're like, I come from the future. No, I mean, like, assuming that, like, in the the conceit of this, you know, situation, you don't already have, you know, 
whatever, an established place in society. Imagine the doctors just dropped you off, kicked you out of the TARDIS, yeah. left you in medieval England. So I think that's why Middle English would be the best choice, because I think knowing Latin would have been the language of the church and of um, sort of ecclesiastical structures, French would have been the language of the aristocracy, but as someone who's presumably just dropped out in the middle of nowhere, um, you don't really have any way of actually accessing these structures, and you also don't really presumably have like any social background that gives you insight into how to interact with people and sort of ingratiate mm -hmm. yourself into these structures. Yeah, it's sort of, if you're starting from zero, it needs to be English, but if you want to sort of advance, I'd say probably French. Yes. Because, I mean, Latin is is a dead language, basically. It's a I mean, it's not dead language on the page, but in terms of, like, getting into the right circles and meeting the right people. You can't buy a loaf of bread in Latin. No, ex exactly. I think English, I think the biggest um, barrier when you're dropped off would be getting some clothes. <laughs> so until you have a pair of actual medieval clothes, no one's going to take you seriously. Oh, speaking of clothes, I, we can do this very, very, very quickly. There was a good question. Uh, I can't remember from who, about, like, how do poor people get their clothes? Because they probably don't have the time to sort of buy them. Well, they don't have the money to buy them or make them themselves in a lot of cases. If you if you couldn't make something yourself, there were quite a lot of networks of charity. Like, yes. Charity was an incredibly important part of the uh, of medieval life. Like, the church, you know, in theory, was distributing money to, money to the poor. A lot of these sort of monastic orders were set up, you know, in part to support the poor. It was... Yeah. As the welfare state is today, it was an incredibly important mechanism for, you know, preventing destitution, even though it wasn't very good at it compared to what yeah. we have now. So yeah, actually, I think um, I think that probably the best sort of strategy for when you're dropped in medieval England, choose Middle English, kind of present yourself as like a beggar, mm. which you shouldn't have any trouble with. Um, you know, all you have to say is I'm a beggar. <laughs> um, get some clothes. Um, get work as a laborer or something, get some piecework, and just do your best to get by until you die of gallstones at age 55. Well, yeah, so Anna has also asked, Actually, I think this is a really good one. Mm. If you met someone who claimed to be a time traveler from the 12th or 13th oh. century, what would you check or talk about to confirm the veracity of the claim? Oh, God. I don't... I'm going to say... It's a brilliant question. But I think the problem is... I don't think there's anything you can do. Because I don't think there's anything that you have more authoritative knowledge of than uh, than they do. Like, I'm coming at it in terms of, like, trying to figure out if they're lying. Yeah. Because if, like, if they were like, oh, no, it didn't... It didn't you asked them, like, oh, what happened to, you know... What happened in 1066? And if they're like, oh, it didn't go down like that. I, as a historian, don't feel comfortable yeah. <laughs> saying you're wrong. Because <laughs> the sources are terrible as it is. Um, but I'm approaching it from a slightly different angle. I don't know. I think... I'm going to approach it from the angle of a fiber artist. Um, Ooh. I'm going to start looking at their clothes. Because medieval and modern oh. clothing construction and fabric construction are incredibly different. Yeah, don't look are... at machine stitch. Look for machine stitching. <laughs> yeah, and there's a there's a huge number of tells um, for a garment being modern versus medieval. Mm. So 
so yeah, I'd, I'd look at things like um, the style of weave that they're using in their clothing, um, materials that it's made out of, yeah, the construction. Because um, yeah, it's anytime you watch a movie set in the Middle Ages, the clothes don't look medieval. It's very hard to get a convincing medieval yeah. look. I was watching uh, David Lowry's The Green Knight last mm -hmm. night, which I quite like. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of, it, The Green Knight gets away with it because it is existing in the sort of hyper-real... Yeah. you know Arthurian legend space so things being anachronistic doesn't really matter the Bridgerton space exactly well and also because you know the king to be honest the legends of King Arthur existed in the Bridgerton space when they were written <laughs> they were anachronistic um but yeah like it was incredibly distracting that like especially there's one particular scene it's the scene when he goes to the to the Lord's house right before he goes to the green chapel and he's wearing this shirt that's so obviously machine stitched and it was driving me mad now again everything in that movie is hallucinogenic and based on legend anyway yeah so it doesn't really matter in that case but it is once you know it and know what to look for it's unbelievably irritating <laughs> definitely so yeah because most medieval fabrics were woven um from wool but then they were subject to this kind of really intensive like processing um, that would have sort of transformed them into um, coincidentally, or not coincidentally, into funnily enough, despite these being like fabrics for poor people, extremely sort of luxurious fabrics for us today mm. because of this hand processing. I think you'd also want to look at things, um, things like sort of, I think the, the physical, the physical signs um, mm. of medieval life. So things yeah. like, you know, plague boils. And I think you'd want to have a look at their teeth. I think mm. most medieval oh, people. Oh, shoot, yeah actually might have had much nicer teeth than us today, especially poor people who couldn't afford um, loads of sugar in their diet and sort of loads of unhealthy food. Although they um, probably don't have veneers. Wouldn't have veneers. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so yeah, and I think any sort of... I think it's hard because I think there are things that would be like affirmational signs that someone mm. is from the 12th or 13th century, but I think it would be very hard to disprove that someone isn't. It would be hard to yeah. prove that someone is modern. Mm. Um, so yeah, but yeah, so very, I'm going to be thinking about that one. That's a good for a while. One. Yeah. Father of mercy, when the day is um, so an anonymous asker asks, hi, did weird medieval guys and gals have fan clubs? <laughs> Was there any mentions of something like stan culture? Were there flocks of girls or boys swooning over a sexy knight or a slutty minstrel or an overly opinionated nun? Thank yes. you. Yes. <laughs> so I'm going to tie this into um, a second question we've got from another anonymous questioner um, who's asked, someone told me nuns often illuminated manuscripts or weaved tapestries, but we never hear of it. It's always how this great guy who did nice lettering. Can you tell us more? So for time reasons, I'm not going to try to give a comprehensive answer to either of these, but I'm going to bring up someone who I think fulfills, uh, who answers both questions, which is um, the great Abbess Hildegard von Bingen. And so we'll we'll get back to her eventually. Yeah, I think it's I think it's maybe low hanging fruit to say people like n monarchs and saints in the Middle Ages were celebrities because mm. they were people who were had kind of structural power or yeah. structural recognition and even well, to take another to take a counter example i think that we talk, we've talked a couple of times about scholars and i think that scholars you know specifically before universities get started 
scholars need to have a name for themselves to attract a following. And so people like Peter Abelard would be names that people wouldn't know outside of Paris because they were the, that was the only way they were able to make money by charging tuition fees, was if they were famous. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Hildegard um, von Bingen, despite not running a sort of private school or anything, um, she was this incredible um, German medieval mystic who, from a young age, um, sort of analogous to Joan of Arc, had these incredible, extremely vibrant and very vivid visions of, um, you know, divine figures and divine concepts. Mm. And she became a very influential religious leader and a lot of um, women, a lot of female um a lot of a lot of nuns and um, female sort of members of the church flocked to her as a sort of spiritual leader. So I think in terms of someone who is sort of sought out not just for you know their place in society, but for that certain je ne sais quoi <laughs> alongside Peter Avalard, I think Hildegard von Bingen is a great example. But uh, yeah, obviously I think medieval celebrity culture as as it exists today is much, much more recent. And I think you could easily argue that it wasn't until even several centuries after the Middle Ages that it became a thing. Well, it's the, it's the, it's an offshoot of the emergence of a mass culture. Yeah. And importantly, a monoculture. Yes. That everybody is sort of experiencing the same stuff, basically. Like things like the invention of the printing press and then the television really enabled, um, See, we're back on my territory now. <laughs> really yeah. enabled the emer like the emergence of a a singular um, a singular sort of cultural space where quote unquote fan communities could could emerge. If you want more information about the sort of the the ontological and epistemological effects of the printing press and the television, uh, amusing ourselves to death is a really good book. I have some in I have some reservations about its kind of conclusion but I think it, it sketches out that point in a really interesting way yeah absolutely um, and to tie that into the question about female artisans in the middle ages I would argue it's not even a question of them being sort of unknown or unsung heroes I would say it's very well documented that there were female um, creators of tapestries and illuminated manuscripts um, it's not even necessarily a question, and the reason why we know so few of them by name is because we know very few illuminators in the first place by name, because they were craftspeople. At the end of the day, blacksmiths aren't writing their names on the horseshoes, um, you know, coopers aren't writing their names on the barrels, and these people weren't necessarily um, writing their names down on their manuscripts, but Hildegard von Bingen is a great example of a woman who we know created manuscript illuminations, many of which are still extant. Um, and, um, you know, even as medieval manuscript production became more commercialized, there were lots of women who worked in that field. Christine de Pizan, the 15th century mm. French writer in Paris, mentions by name a woman named Genevieve, who we don't know anything about, but who Christine says creates the most beautiful manuscript illuminations she's ever seen. So, yes, those women were out there. Brilliant answer. So, we've got a question from Anonymous that I just thought I'd pop in here uh, towards towards the end, just as a, as a thing to highlight. Um, so, uh, hello from the Empire of Evil. Do you have any plans uh, for exploring weird medieval guys who lived outside of Europe? Thank you. Uh, the short answer is yes. <laughs> we have a couple of ideas. 
Um, we've got at least one thing that's definitely coming. Um, we're going to do, might as well just say it, at some point, uh, probably in the earlier months of the year, we're going to do an episode about uh, the Vikings in North America and Greenland, and we're going to be talking quite a bit about the indigenous peoples of uh, Canada and Greenland in that, and sort of their their experiences in it, engaging with, the, with, with Vikings. Um, so yeah, and then obviously there's, I mean, th this is very much a, you know, the, you have to put kind of bounds around <laughs> any history podcast. And so this will always be a bit more of a sort of Europe-heavy show. Well, it's unfortunate that any time I post artwork on Twitter that's not from Europe, but is from the time period we define as the Middle Ages, there are always people who say this is not technically medieval, this is not European. Yeah, I because find that a bit annoying. medieval is, in people's minds, I think, it's both a temporal thing, but it's also a... a uh, geographical thing like people don't yeah. people sometimes talk about medieval china but it's much more common to talk about the dynasty or whatever yeah which um, like it's it's fair for like purposes of academic rigor not to say that it's all the same cultural movement but mm -hmm. to get on like twitter or someone's podcast and be like officially technically speaking it's not medieval and it's like shut up um but yeah more more to get to the point i think one of the things that i am quite keen to do in this show and we've only really had it opportunity to do it a couple of times so far is to be really aware of the sort of interdependence between Europe and the rest of the world um, that's why I really want to do something about the Mongols sometime soon because I love the Mongols and they are not only super fascinating in their own right but they they facilitate so much cultural exchange between yeah. between you know with, between Europe and the rest of Eurasia close us out with what is unquestionably the single most important question that we received in this episode, which is from Anonymous, who asks, what would a medieval peasant have thought of Jambalaya? They would have fucking loved it. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I mean, my sort of, my non-jokey answer to that question is that Jambalaya is like almost archetypally the kind of thing that you would have eaten in like Muslim Spain and um, or maybe not Muslim. Maybe not if you were a Muslim, but in um, Andalus period. It's basically Spain. wet paella. Exactly. Like it's it's rice and seafood and spices, right? Yeah. It's perfect. That's that's the that's the kind of shit they love. Absolutely. I mean, starch, protein, spice. Mm -hmm. No one. No one is going to find issues yeah. with that. Well, actually, they will because lots of religions have a prohibition against eating um, the. The bugs of the sea. <laughs> yeah, but I mean in general, you know, the format of starch, protein, and spice. Oh yeah, sure. Like it's a, it's a, it's, you know, tried and true. But all I say is this medieval peasant loved it. Absolutely. I'm so sorry to all of the brilliant questions that we couldn't answer, um, or at least answer completely. We would have loved to, but we would have probably kept you here for about five hours, yeah. and oh no God. one wants that. We said we talked about uh, this episode as being about 45 minutes long. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's not happening, obviously. I mean, to be absolutely honest, and I am not sucking up to you, I promise. This is sincere. 
Um, a lot of these questions are so good that they deserve their own episode and to us to really sort of do them justice like we got questions about like fashion and and things like that and I'm like that is that's another two hours <laughs> we don't have yeah. time for that but the a lot of this if if you see a uh, an episode pop into your feed in the coming months that it seems suspiciously similar to a question you asked yep we did plagiarize it <laughs> And we always really appreciate hearing suggestions from people on yes. what they want to hear about because we're making content for you guys. Mm-hmm. So if you've if you've if you've sent a reply before or a DM to one of us saying you should make an episode about this, just keep bugging us, keep it coming, um, and we will try to get around to all of the yeah. brilliant suggestions we've been sent. Oh my god, yeah. So yeah, I mean, we we love you. Um, so yeah, I think that's just about gonna gonna do us for this this episode. And and you know that is basically a wrap on weird medieval guys in 2023 when you by the time you hear this i mean not right now for us we're like a month away but like (laughs) you know i i hope you had a when you're listening i hope you had a wonderful holiday period whether or not you're observing any of the various december holidays or not i hope you you know had a good year as well like and by the way you know speaking of the end of the year you'll have already heard this in the christmas episode when we do it but uh you know, for everybody who had us on their Spotify wrapped, thank you so much. That was yes. an unbelievably humbling uh, thing to see. Everybody who sort of posted about it and everybody who's been enjoying this show, like it, I mean, we make this show first and foremost because it interests us and we'd be talking about it anyway. But the real reason we've kept making it Is, crimes is to share the beautiful sounds in Essex with you. Woo. Technically not Essex. You've gotten too attached to this idea that you live in Essex. I love Essex. I would say. Oh God. The only way is Essex. Oh God. Where was I? Um, we make content for ourselves, but also for you. Yeah, like it would not be as fun as it is without everybody's comments and thoughts and 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 love and sharing the show and uh, you know every every time somebody tells us about you know a way that they interact with the show or where they listen to it or things like that it it really does does mean the world um and it's been a it's been a crazy year you know yeah now now that the year is almost done (laughs) for you it's been i mean yeah it's i don't think any of us um any of us i think you know neither of us knew exactly what to expect going in when we started making this podcast in terms of the response um or you know how it would go but I think it's safe to say for both of us that we're so glad that we've um, started doing this. And we're so grateful mm. to everyone for the wonderful response. It really does keep us going. Yeah. And yeah, thank you to you guys for being such brilliant listeners. And thank you to everybody who uh, who um, bought Olivia's book and continues to buy Olivia's book. And everybody who got Olivia's book as a Christmas present or yes, a Hanukkah present absolutely. or a present from Sinterklaas. Yes, there's still time to buy it. Um, yeah, it did. It does. You don't. It's not going to go away. <laughs> so if you haven't bought it yet, yeah, do it. Do it. It's. I mean, it's delightful. Um, just, I know I would say this, but I don't get you. People don't understand. I do not get commission for this. <laughs> I just um, you know, I I am I am floored by how by how lovely it is. So if you if you want a sort of a New Year's present or a January present or February present or whatever. Just like any excuse you want to find for yourself, uh, get Olivia's lovely book, 
get whatever merch is available on sale at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, follow us on the socials. Yeah, at um, Weird Medieval on Twitter. And um, I'm at Olivia underscore underscore MS on Twitter is my personal account. Uh, and I am at Aaron P. Tappers on uh, Twitter. And I'm at Aram on uh, Blue Sky. Lovely keeping it simple. And uh, yeah, no, we will we will see you in uh, 2024. Oh, shoot. I almost forgot. What? We have to tell them what the next episode is going to be. Why? Because I want to. Okay, then do it. <laughs> Go on. Oh, we're doing... We are doing... Aaron Takeover. We're doing two episodes on Constantinople. You're right. I don't even have to be in it. Do I? <laughs> yeah, that's good. You can just sit, but you can just, you don't even have to be here. Yeah. You can just I know. go. I might. I might. I'll just have a nervous breakdown in the, <laughs> in audio format for, you know, three hours. <laughs> yeah. No. So, so uh, stay tuned for that. Olivia will be in it because otherwise it will be unlistenable. <laughs> Um, and yeah, on that note, happy holidays to everyone. Yeah. Um, have a wonderful start to your new year, and we'll see you in constant. And we'll see you in Constantinople That's in twenty twenty four. That's Shut staying up. <laughs> All right, everybody, take it easy. Okay.